We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast which focuses on pop culture from a Jewish perspective and Judaism through the lens of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I'm Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. And today we are talking about Superstore, the NBC comedy, which recently completed its six seasons with its series finale. Mike, why don't you tell us about the show? Sure. So Superstore kind of came on the scene uh, after the uh, close, uh, after the conclusion of The Office. So it kind of, you know, fills that, uh, that, that gap of workplace comedy um, that was left behind uh, when The Office went off the air. It started in uh, 2015. It ran, like you said, uh, it just completed its run this uh, past March, um, created by Justin Spitzer, uh, starring America Ferreira um, of uh, Ugly Betty fame, uh, who's also an executive producer of the show, and Ben Feldman, who uh, you might remember uh, from Mad Men, um, uh, cut off his own nipple in Mad Men, probably not really, but uh, but nevertheless, a memorable performance there. Uh, and it follows uh, Ben Feldman's character, Jonah, America Ferreira's character, Amy, uh, who are workers in a Walmart slash Target style superstore called Cloud Nine, a fictional store. They're store number 1217 for those keeping track at home. Uh, it's a fictional big box store in uh, the St. Louis, Missouri area. Um, and it's got a, a great ensemble cast, uh, 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 Lauren Ash, Colton Dunn, um, and uh, it follows the adventures and misadventures of all of these workers and the uh, faceless uh, conglomerate that controls their lives uh, that is also feeling its uh, unique pressures from the economic headwinds of our world today, right? This is a, you know, post Great Recession reality. Um, it uh, deals that with- That is Zephyr, right? That they call it this- Zephyr, this, Zephyr. Zephyr, sorry, this, this big corporate- well, so Zephyr comes into the scene uh, toward the end of the run. I think the the fifth and sixth seasons is where Zephyr uh, uh, takes over the Cloud Nine Corporation. But before that, Cloud Nine is itself a big faceless corporation. Um, you know, think Walmart, think Target. You know that uh, that you know runs these stores all over the country, uh, but uh, but you know doesn't really uh, interact with, um, doesn't really care all that much about. Um, its employees or, it, or 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 its workers treats its labor as uh, disposable, as dispensable, um, and you know, in in a lot of ways, uh, the corporations have a case to make for that um, because you know, if there's if if somebody you know quits, doesn't like working there, they'll find you know another uh, low wage employee to take their place and sort of like you know, winner take all. Um, eat or be eaten uh, capitalist uh, uh, economy um, that it finds itself in, right? So situated in this kind of post-Great Recession uh, era um, of, you know, uh, where the office kind of uh, talks about how, you know, the, the little company um, is being uh, pursued and swallowed by the, you know, bigger big box stores, 
right? Um, this is the triumph of the big box store. Um, and then ultimately, um, how the big box store itself is being pushed out uh, by uh, the, the, um, the, the stronger um, and more hegemonous forces of the internet. But through its run, it deals with a number of really uh, compelling issues with a great and hilarious cast. Um, it deals with immigration, it deals with uh, racism, it deals with um, uh, labor justice. Uh, and uh, I, I, I personally, cards on the table, I really enjoyed Superstore, was, uh, was weekly viewing in our household. Jesse, what did you think of Superstore? Um, I, I sort of ebbed and flowed in my uh, appreciation of it. Could never really get into it. I think part of the challenge was it launched at a time when most of my viewing of television was already on streaming services. Um, I wonder if um, uh, Superstore was not on a, a primetime uh, TV network, if it was either on cable or streaming service, if it would have been uh, more successful. I think it suffered from that challenge of being a successful comedy uh, that was a sort of 22 minute show that had to take breaks for commercials um, that had to really control and limit its humor uh, with regards to vulgarity and, and that sort of thing. Um, language. Uh, I wonder if it would have been a better show if it was on a streaming service. The other thing, you know, one of the things that that made The Office and something like Parks and Recs, Parks and Rec, uh, funny was the mockumentary style of it. Uh, Superstore, consciously, uh, Justin Spitzer was, was an Office alum. He was a writer for The Office and consciously distanced itself from that mockumentary style. Um, May I would argue to its detriment because it didn't allow us to have that sort of one-on-one -on -one relationship with the characters in the same way. Also, I, I think it really speaks to my own challenge, right? You, you don't have a relationship with a big box store. Nobody walks in and says, oh, Walmart is my favorite store or Target is my favorite store. I, right? I disagree about it's, Target. <laughs> so so we, we did that. Uh, my, my wife was joking the other day, had to go to Target and said, never go to Target on a rainy Sunday, right? That it's a place where you could get whatever you need there, but it's a sort of a, a disaster when, when you walk in and people are rude with the customers, not necessarily the employees Ooh. but but the, the one that that we sort of go to right the lines are 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 are, are, are are long and so it's a real uh it's not a necessarily store that you have this deep attachment and love with like um maybe a mom and pop shop and so that may be the problem the, the challenge why i had a, a why I had a challenge getting into the show itself. I do appreciate some of the humor and I do appreciate some of the real world situations that the show tackled, right? It, it tackled racism. Um, it tackled immigration and immigration rights. Um, it, it certainly was a show that um, uh, dealt with representation in a way that other shows didn't. Um, I did like as a little plus, you know, I'm a big fan of Good Girls. Uh, and the show's um, superstore, Clown 9, randomly appeared in other NBC shows as a big box store, which was kind of fun. 
Uh, you're all about the interconnected universes. Yeah, the multiverse. Um, well, listen, I, you know, I, I, I will, I will fight you uh, on uh, on Target. Um, I actually uh, rather enjoy trips to Target, but maybe I just uh, have a, a uniquely uh, pleasant target in, in my area in Richmond, Virginia. Um, but I do agree with you. I mean, I think that like the, you know, the, those stores, um, you know, sort of exist to be um, anonymous, right? I mean, that, that if you go into a target somewhere, you're going to a target er everywhere, right? I could go. And now it's even more, you know, to the point, like, I, you know, I, on my target app, uh, if I, we were just on a road trip um, to the mountains, in Virginia, we needed you know to get hats and sunscreen for the kids. I just like went right on my Target app and found it in the store that was nearby our area. Went there; it was in the same kind of aisle and place that that it is here. So, the, I mean, the, that's the premise of those stores: is that you know it, there may be slightly worse versions of it, you know, or better versions of it depending on where you go, but they're going to be more or less the same everywhere and that's part of the appeal that's part of the draw of it is that uh is that you know your your the consistency of experience <clears throat> um and, and i and i agree with you that um that the show may have suffered for that because you know what it meant was that you know you're looking into the store um and uh, it really does feel like you're walking into a walmart walking to a target when you sit down and watch superstore but what comes through to me were these really colorful characters what where i think it you know uh suffered was in its inevitable office comparisons, right? You know, Justin Spitzer, an office alum, uh, comes right on the heels of the end of uh, the office's run. You have, you know, the the quirky boss in Glenn, which, you know, you can't help but have Michael Scott comparisons uh, to that. Um, you have, um, you know, Jonah and Amy are kind of like the Jim and Pam of the show. Dina is the Dwight Schrute, uh, very much the Dwight Schrute kind of character. Um, so, uh, so there, there are a lot of similarities there. And I think that, you know, um, uh, people watched it, you know, thinking that they were watching The Office and in that comparison felt like it was a lesser version of The Office. Um, and until you give the characters, I think their own kind of space to breathe, their own stories to tell. Um, and then I think it, it really stands on its own, um, maybe as a companion to The Office, right? Sort of like the next generation of The Office, right? It's like Star Trek, the next generation. You have the uh, original cast of Kirk uh, is Michael Scott, right? And then Picard is uh, Glenn Sturgis. Um, there are going to be some uh, Trekkers who are going to at me um, about that, but uh, but that's I'm going to stick to that analogy for a moment. Um, and, you know, I found the, you know, the, the, the actors uh, did a great job. I thought the characters were very colorful. I think that they stood out in that, you know, kind of bland setting. Um, and I think that that's kind of the point that the show is trying to make is that you go into a place like Target, it's faceless, it's the same everywhere. And the employees are just kind of like the wallpaper, you know, you go into a mom and pop shop, and you know mom and pop, like you interact with them. They're part of the community. You engage with them. They're part of the charm of the store. You go into a Target or to a Walmart, the the the, the staff or, or uh, what do they call them at Walmart? Associates, um, right, are, you know, are, are like the drapes, right? They're, they're supposed to fade into the background. They're supposed to be faceless. They're, they're supposed to be as anonymous as the store. And here Superstore is saying to us, you know, these are not anonymous people. Like these are real people with real lives that most of us, when we walk into those stores, 
um, are trained to just to kind of ignore or to use. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, right, it is speaking volumes about the problem with the big box store as a result, right? Even the end of the show, um, the series finale, when Amy was telling Jonah before they kissed and got back together, whatever, was essentially like, um, you have had 30 jobs in your life. Why did you stay at Cloud Nine for, for six years? And he said, because it was a good job. And she said, it's a terrible job. And she, and she became store manager and then she became corporate herself, right? And, and, and she's and she is acknowledging that to be an associate in one of these big box stores is a, a terrible job. Um, if you look at it, right? And this is true for the office too. The antics, the fun stuff is not the work, right? The fun stuff is all the things that they do in the warehouse or the break room or uh, at night when, when they're restocking, you know, getting ready for Black Friday or whatever. That's the comedy. The comedy is not um, that they are enjoying themselves at work. It's that they have to create these antics because they are unhappy in a job where they get paid very little where they are wallflowers, if you will, and are meant to be ignored or forgotten. Right. And so that, I mean, that to me, you know, as, as I'm watching this through a, a Jewish lens um, of, you know, a tradition that um, uh, places a lot of emphasis, I mean, first and foremost, you know, from the foundations of the tradition that all human beings are created in the divine image, right, that we're, uh, you know, equal in value and infinite in, in dignity, uh, that Jewish values with respect to labor come out of that ideal, to say that our, you know, uh, that, that uh, our employees, right, those who, those who, you know, do the work of our, uh, in our society, you know, they're, they're not just cogs in a machine, right, they're, they're human beings um, created in the divine image and ought to be treated that way, and I think that too often, you know, we, uh, we, we've allowed um, a, a system to emerge that, you know, that, that, um, that not only devalues the labor of individuals, but devalues them as human beings, right? And so, you know, so like, like we as the consumers are, are trained basically to ignore the, the staff, like, you know, only when they're problematic do we care about them. Um, and, and what the show I think is pointing out is I think a deeply Jewish idea that, that these are, that, that these are real people with, with real lives, real concerns, real needs, real struggles, um, funny, right. And so, you know, but I, but I always felt like, you know, in the office, a lot of times, uh, you know, I felt like I was, you know, laughing at the characters, right. In this show, the characters I think were, were, uh, enabling me to like laugh at the absurdity of the, you know, the kind of, you know, uh, eat or be eaten capitalist um, uh, system that we're a part of. Um, and it's sort of like a, you know, a, a laugh. If I don't laugh, I'm going to cry about it because um, you see how it, it impacts um, these people's lives, right? How, you know, the last season um, was uh, filmed during the pandemic, right? And so it really, it's like the one, the only show I've seen that has uh, given any kind of window into what it is to be a quote unquote essential employee during a pandemic, which is to say that, um, that you need that work because you can't afford not to, you can't afford, and you're not able to work from home in that kind of job. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the, 
the company will just easily replace you if you, you know, don't show up. You can't afford not to show up anyway. Um, and the company doesn't provide you with what you need to be safe and to be healthy. It doesn't give you the resources or the training uh, to be able to do it. You just kind of have to figure it out on your own. And that's the story. That's the, that's been the case with, with millions of workers uh, in, in our country and around the world during the course of this pandemic. They've been in exactly that situation. I, I Absolutely. That, yeah. we, we call them essential workers, but they're really expendable workers, right? They are workers who will be replaced if they don't show up for, for their work. It's, it's not only that their job is essential, but them showing up is essential for their own well-being. Well, we, uh, with our privilege, have the luxury of working remotely um, right. so that uh, they can stock our shelves and deliver our groceries or, or or deliver our takeout or, or pick up our, our garbage or anything like that, deliver our mail. They're the ones that are showing up in person and having to interact in very close proximity, hands-on to many other individuals for a very low hourly paying job. Right, I mean, the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the employees of Dunder Mifflin uh, probably would have been able to work remotely during the pandemic, right? And the employees at, uh, at Cloud, Zephyr Cloud9 um, you know, don't have that luxury. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I said this at the very beginning of the pandemic uh, too, I wrote a, a piece this is before we all went into lockdown, but it was clear kind of what was on the horizon. Um, it was right around Purim. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I compared uh, a coronavirus and pandemic to Amalek, which uh, we're told in the Torah, um, who were told in the Torah attacks the children of Israel uh, from behind, hitting the stragglers in the rear first. Um, and uh, there is some commentary that says, you know, why is it that the Torah commands us uniquely to remember this moment and specifically how Amalek attacked us? And one of the answers is, is because it reminds us that we failed in our responsibility, right? That we had stragglers behind us. Like we had people that were, that, that we just kind of like left out there, right? While we hunkered down inside the Ananea Kavod, inside the uh, clouds of glory, well protected, right? And so um, one of the things I suggested at that time, and it's, you know, become, you know, uh, born, been borne out as, as true throughout the pandemic, um, is that we, we have done, you know, virtually nothing to say all of these people, whether they're low wage workers, or the elderly, you name it, the uh, people of color, um, all the people who are already the most vulnerable within our society, you know, what we did is, you know, we went inside our homes, sheltered in place because we could do our jobs remotely and had a nice shelter. And then said, all of those people will, you know, bring me my food, stock the shelves, uh, pick up my trash. Um, and ultimately, I don't really care what happens to them. Yeah, and I think the show... Um, also highlights that when we find out uh, in the penultimate episode, the second to last episode, that they're not closing the store, but rather that they are shifting it to um, a a warehouse, like a distribution to, to a center. distribution yeah. center, right? right. That, they, that they're turning into an, an Amazon warehouse essentially, and that Dina is able to keep five of the employees, um, and that she has to choose. And by choosing, it's who, you know, whose livelihood um, is, 
she taking with her and, and who is she throwing out um, and, and having to go off on their own. Uh, that's, you know, I think the challenge, what I find really interesting about this show is that when we compare it to The Office, the biggest challenge about something like Dunder Mifflin was that they were losing, this mom and pop paper company was losing to the big box store and we saw the big box store is evil, right? It was losing to the office maxes of the world. Staples. The yeah. staples of the world. Uh, and now this show ends with the big box store closing and becoming a distribution center because it's losing to the Amazons of the world. Right. Right. That's, that's the direction. I think it was exacerbated by the pandemic, uh, but that's the direction the world is going in is less uh, storefront retail and more online retail. Well, it's also, it's also uh, you know, the consolidation of resources into the hands of fewer and fewer people, right? And um, <laughs> just as an aside, you know, like I remember when, when like all the Barnes and Noble stores were closing because uh, Amazon was putting them out of business. There's still a few around. There's one actually right across from the Target that I go to, uh, across the parking lot from the Target that I go to. Um, and, you know, people were lamenting the fact that Barnes and Noble was going away because of Target, like forgetting that like just five years before Barnes and Noble had put the local bookstore out of business. Um, so it, that's the that's the um, uh, trend line that we've been on for, for some time. And I, I was reading a piece um, uh, recently in The Atlantic by um, I think the author's name is um, uh, Colin Murth Murphy, I think uh, it's called uh, the, the article is called No Really, Are We Rome? Um, we, and it was a kind of a, a, a takeoff of, um, you, you know, observing what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, you know, and, and having comparisons, you know, is this like Rome burning, basically? Um, and it's a really interesting article on a number of fronts. But one of the things that he says is that uh, there was a historian who put the, the, the decline of Rome um, into three words, right? Like a millennium of history into three words, which is that you can trace the decline of Rome through this phenomenon. Fewer have more. And, uh, and, and so that's the, um, that's the trajectory that, uh, that a show like Cloud9 really captures. And I think that's going to have a lasting cultural impact uh, because of it. It's going to be a, a, a real uh, time capsule for, for this moment. Um, the, the pandemic exacerbated it, but didn't cause it, right? We were already on this path where fewer have more in our country, which is, um, I think, profoundly antithetical to, uh, to, to Jewish values. It's not as though the Torah doesn't believe that, you know, individuals can accumulate uh, wealth and, and, and be, uh, co live comfortably. Um, but, the, but the Torah has all sorts of safeguards um, and institutions put in place so that A, there shall be no needy among you, right? And B, that there isn't a permanent consolidation of wealth into fewer and fewer hands. So you have institutions like the, like the Shemitah and the Yovel, uh, the Jubilee year, um, which kind of reset the table so that there isn't kind of a, um, you know, a intergenerational um, amassing of wealth so that it gets consolidated into fewer and fewer hands. And then beyond that, right, it has uh, any number of uh, rules and safeguards so that um, uh, so that labor um, uh, and, and those who do the labor are um, 
are afforded the fullness of their humanity and their and their human dignity. Uh, the Talmud says, uh, um, ki, the Torah says, ki li el avadim, um, right? God says, because the children of Israel are servants of mine. And the Talmud says, you know, avadaihem below avadim le avadim, right? They're servants of gods and not servants to servants, right? Recognizing that all human beings are equal underneath one God, um, and that none of us can therefore treat another human being um, like uh, like a slave, right? Now, of course, the employees at Zephyr Cloud Nine aren't slaves, right? Jonah said it was a good job, and there's a way in which that's true. Um, but in some important ways, um, you know, the the analogy holds, right? Just because you're paid a wage doesn't necessarily mean you aren't in some way um, uh, treated with the you know the 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 full dignity of your humanity. Um, my professor in college, Eric Foner, um, who is you know one of the foremost experts on um, slavery and Reconstruction, and and then uh, the emergence of America post uh, Civil War, um, talks about how uh, um, how you know, one of the Southern critiques of Northern industry is we have slaves, but you basically have wage slaves, right? Sure. So you have people, you have people who, who work for a wage, but how are they any better off than, um, than the, the people that we've had, that we have enslaved? Now, I'm not arguing that their argument was correct, right? Um, but I'm saying that there, there's a point that they're making, um, which is that if you, if you um, treat your employees um, as disposable and dispensable, if you don't actually care for their humanity, if you don't, um, if you don't treat them as partners in, your, um, uh, in, in, in the industry, in the business, if you, if you don't um, uh, afford them the fullness of their dignity, um, then they might as well be slaves. Yeah, there was a, an article that came out um, a number of years ago with Walmart talking about how somebody who was an associate at Walmart, the average associate who worked a 40-hour week job, full-time job, right, that, that they were still um, looking for SNAP benefits, that they were still um, applying for Medicaid and the whole idea of, of uh, that somebody could have a full-time job, 40-hour week job for that, what was then the largest company in the world, in the country at least, um, it didn't make any sense. And it's about those on top giving themselves more money and bonuses with, with, while refusing to... Um, increase the salaries of those who um, make it go each and every day, right? That's the the argument and the pushback against a living wage. Oh, if, if we gave everybody a living wage, then we're going to have to cut staff. Or if right. we gave everybody um, universal health care, right? We're going to have to cut staff. And that's not the case. It's, it's just those on top want to uh, add more zeros to the end of their paycheck, Right. I mean, you know, if, if Jeff Bezos wanted to, uh, like, provide full health insurance for every single Amazon employee, he could and would still be a billionaire. He would still be the wealthiest man in the country. Right. Uh, you know, I wonder, Mike, you were talked about the Yovel, right, the Jubilee year, which we find a lot in um, Parshat Bihar uh, and the power 
because we have this, um, the challenge in society is this sort of generational poverty that exists and a generational wealth that exists. That um, uh, Cory Booker used to say uh, that, that his father told him, he said, don't act like you hit a triple when you were born on third base. Right. Right, that, that there's the privilege that somebody has. Part of it is because of gender, part of it is because of race, part of it is because of class and what one was, what was provided for somebody. And there are those who have the, the challenge of generational poverty and working their way out of that system of poverty uh, is a challenge that I cannot even imagine. The Yovel, as you said, works to change that. And it's almost a reset button, right? Every 50 years, that's not society now, right? That's not real life. So how do we change the system and so that it's not generational wealth having control over generational poverty? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated, I think, you know, uh, and so I'm reminded there's a, a story of uh, some clergy who um, uh, got a meeting during the Vietnam era with uh, Secretary of Defense uh, McNamara, and you know they were arguing for an end to the war. And he said, "Okay, well, let's say I pulled all of American troops out of Vietnam tomorrow. Um, like, what what would you propose I do then?" And uh, and they said, "Or how would you propose I do that?" Or you know something like that. And and they said, "You know, we're here to tell you that we want righteousness to roll down like water and justice like a mighty stream." And you're asking us about the plumbing, like the plumbing is your job, not ours, right? And so I, I'm not, I'm not a policy wonk, right? I'm not sure all of the solutions. I think that you know some of them, to me, would be uh, providing workers with the minimum wage, uh, having the having you know a, a, um, healthcare provided by the government, and stop having it tied to employment, which is um, a, you know a vestige of of uh, of a of a bygone era anyway um, we don't live in a in an in a society or an economy anymore uh, where it makes any sense for your health care to be tied to your employment um, and uh, and and Jewish values I think would say that uh, that that health care is a right not a privilege um, and that therefore it's a communal responsibility to provide to ensure that everybody has health care I think that Judaism pretty clearly would uh, would advocate for uh, for a living wage for everyone um, it's it's unconscionable that the minimum wage and uh, the federal minimum wage hasn't been raised in this country for I think two decades um, and uh, you know uh, so I, I'm, I'm uh, all in for the fight for 15. Um, I, I think that that's a baseline um, and not a conclusion. I think that what we should be arguing for is a, a living wage. I think workers should have you know bills of rights um, uh, and uh, you know should be able to share in companies uh, profits. You know we uh, we were fighting in Virginia uh, for two years now, um, uh, we managed to make some progress on it in this last General Assembly session uh, for paid sick leave for workers, right? In the middle of a pandemic, we couldn't get uh, paid sick leave passed in the General Assembly uh, in, in Virginia. It's crazy when you think about it, right? That, that uh, employers were allowed to, to force their workers to either come to work sick or lose wages. Um, it's crazy 
you know, because especially like, you know, think about the person, you know, making your burrito at Chipotle, <laughs> having to come in, having to make that choice, right? And then wondering why it is that, you know, people sometimes get sick eating at Chipotle. Yeah. Um, uh, so it has to do with the food, but that's a you know, conversation. You get you know, a lot of apps for that too. I, I, I think, um, I, I think Judaism is also very much on the side of the union, right? That the, the union defends the, the little guy, right? The, the union, there, there's power in numbers. Um, the, the union is, uh, all of Bnei Israel and the Erev Rav uh, exiting e Egypt together and, and saying it's only together can we rid ourselves of the narrowness of Mitzrayim. Uh, and that's that's the power of the union. And it's sort of apt that we're discussing this, right? Unionizing was uh, a, a topic and a subject that Superstore also addressed. Um, and we're talking about it now as Amazon is fighting against some of its workers wanting to unionize in Alabama. And um, there's a, a great quote that, that one of them said. They said that Amazon would not be spending millions of dollars to discourage us from joining a union if, in fact, what they claim was true, that we're just wasting our dues money and giving it to somebody else, right? They wouldn't spend millions of dollars if it was a waste of money. They're spending millions of dollars because they're worried that it's a threat that it gives us more rights, that it gives us more time off, that it gives us more healthcare, that it gives us more raises, uh, that it gives us more power. Um, I, I want to highlight it if I can, Mike, um, as you know, my, my grandfather passed away last week and um, the highlight of, of his career really starting off as a traveling salesman, became a president of a, a company in Virginia, Mid-South Building Supplies. Uh, it was sort of a wholesale building supply company. And um, in the 80s, it was sort of revolutionary for them to do what they did, but uh, they really were an ESOP, right? They were an employee stock ownership plan company so that uh, they gave employee as ownership interest in the company, um, not just shareholders and stock options, but the idea that um, when an employee actually has ownership in the company, that um, they have interest in the decisions that are being made. And from a profit margin perspective, they end up uh, working differently and working harder because they don't just see it as a nine to five job. They see it as um, something that will make a difference in their in the long run and in their lives. And so I, I think about that when we think about these big box stores and the Jeff Bezos of the world uh, versus uh, the, the every man and every woman um, that, that we, we want to fight to empower the workers to have that, give them more stake in the company that they're supposed to be representing. And certainly that they represent more than the billionaire at top. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's uh, so incredible about your grandfather and, and uh, I'm sorry for your loss. He sounds like a, a, a wonderful man and um, I pray that his memory is a blessing. And I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that uh, that, that kind of model, um, you know, sh seems to me to, uh, to incentivize better work, right? If you're invested in the success of your uh, of your business of your company, then you're going to work harder uh, rather than you know if, 
if you're if they treat you as disposable right you can treat the job as disposable you can treat the business as disposable too which uh, you know i mean superstore i think kind of highlights this that you know the the workers need the work i mean they need the job but they don't love working there by and large um and uh you know and so they they kind of put in exactly as much effort into into the work as is uh as is required for them not to get fired and like and no more um it's not a great model for uh for for productivity um you know but it, but it raises a really important question you know the amazons of the world Target, Walmart, they're so ubiquitous. It's it's really a, a complicated challenge because on the one hand, we recognize the, the nefarious practices um, of some of these companies, um, you know, the ways in which um, they, you know, routinely violate, you know, what, what we're arguing are the best of, of Jewish values. And on the other hand, like, first of all, in some communities at this point, Walmart is the, literally the only game in town. You know, it's, it's swallowed up everything else. And increasingly, Amazon is the only game in town. You know, it's, 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 such, it, it's so ubiquitous in the marketplace. Um, we had this principle in Judaism uh, called which means uh, strengthening the hands of, uh, of, of, of evildoers or, or those who you know, transgress uh, commandments. Uh, the idea is that, you know, that we uh, using our money, using our resources shouldn't uh, support those who are do, who are wronging others, right? In other words, you know, if, if we see Amazon as a bad actor, we should stop patronizing Amazon. We should stop buying things from Amazon. I'm, I'm just, I'm what I'm wondering though, you know, is that, is that a value that's worth applying here? Um, I find it firstly, personally hard to apply it here because you know, there's just like, so Amazon is woven in at this point into the fabric of our lives. And also, you know, uh, not patronizing Amazon also potentially hurts the very workers that I, you know, want to help by my doing that. So it's a complicated challenge. How do you navigate that, Jesse? Especially during this pandemic, truthfully, um, right again, it speaks to our privilege. Amazon is what has, um, allowed my family to stay healthy. Um, Amazon has also allowed uh, my wife and I working very busy schedules, taking care of three children. Uh, it has given us some convenience, right? That if I could just like open up my phone and click on something and 24 hours later, that thing that I know that we need arrives at my doorstep, there is, um, real blessing to that from the convenience factor. Um, I think we can do both. I, I think we can uh, appreciate that and the need for that and still need to go out of our way to support local businesses. I think we need to go out of our way to fight, right? We can shop on Amazon and still fight for uh, workers' rights, still fight for unionization. Um, it, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I don't think it's an either or. Um, Right. I, I think that's right. I think that, you know, um, uh, you know, each of us as individuals um, has, you know, um, you know, limited impact on Amazon's bottom line. All of us collectively do. But I think that the issue is beyond, you know, uh, where we choose to spend our dollars. The, the issue is more systemic than that. Right. And I think that what, you know, the, the better energy would be spent um, 
you know, rather than boycotting Amazon, um, which will, you know, not likely make much of a dent in Jeff Bezos's bottom line or um, his, um, you know, or, or influence his decisions about how to treat his employees um, to, you know, to advocate on the state and federal level for, you know, for, for universal health care, minimum wage, um, the collective bargaining rights, um, you know, so many states have just eviscerated collective bargaining rights. I mean, Alabama is a really, you know, great case for that, uh, where, you know, the, I mean, the union failed, uh, but the fact that it was um, such a, uh, that there was even a possibility that it was going to succeed was, you know, an enormous uphill climb in, in such a, you know, uh, staunch, quote unquote, right to work state. Um, you know, so I think that there's, there's a lot, a lot that needs to be done you know, on a systemic level, um, that would accomplish what you know we want to. Because I don't think that that it's you know it's if you put Amazon out of business, you know there'll be another Jeff Bezos who comes in their place. The better thing would be to advocate for a system in which nobody is allowed to become what Amazon is right now. Um, and I think that that's the um, the the better play practically and in, in terms of Jewish values, right? And I think that, you know, we're, the Torah, I think would say that, you know, it's not inherently problematic for, for a company to be successful, um, but, uh, but it is problematic when a company is as successful at the expense of so many other people, um, uh, as you see with, with companies like Amazon or Walmart. When they become the only company. Right. Essentially. I, yeah. I think I think that's fair. And maybe that's that's a good place for us to wrap up today, Mike, um, that a, a task for all of us that um, we, we Judaism does not um, <clears throat> does not uh, look down on success. Uh, it supports success, but it also makes sure that um success should not come at the expense of another, that we are told simultaneously that we should not close our hands or our hearts to those who are in need. And we create a world where there should be no one in need. Amen. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much for uh, listening today. Once again, uh, if you like our podcast, and we hope that you do, uh, please rate and subscribe us feel free to share with your friends uh we'd uh, love to continue the conversation with you uh but until next time i am rabbi michael knopf and i am rabbi jesse olitsky take care have everyone. a heavenly day <laughs>